All right, this is exciting. First real episode of the podcast. Um, all right, so I want to give a little bit of an introduction here. Hopefully it won't be too long into why I chose this topic as my f- the first topic I wanted to cover on the podcast. So the topic is the history of slavery in Canada. Um, I have Natasha Henry on. She is a PhD candidate at uh, York University in Ontario. And she specializes in this. She specializes in the enslavement of Africans in in early Ontario. And a few years ago, if you'd asked me what personal connection do I have to the enslavement of Africans in early Ontario, I would have said uh, no connection at all. Um, I, I, it turns out I actually have quite a large connection um, uh, to that uh, phenomenon in that my own ancestors um, were slaves, African slaves in early Ontario. And I had never known that before. Uh, it's something that I only found out very recently. I, I took a DNA test a few years ago, and I found out that I was part Sub-Saharan African, and mostly of European descent. But I had part that was Sub-Saharan African, and I didn't know where it came from. And I've spent some time doing genealogical research trying to figure that out. And needless to say, I was quite surprised that my ancestors had been enslaved in Canada and subsequently moved to the United States um, in order to become free. I'd known about the Underground Railroad and I'd known that Americans had have freed slaves, had gone to Canada to get their freedom. And what very few people know is that Canada had its own experience with slavery. And that some Canadian some Canadian slaves would escape to the United States. And it appears that I descend from some of those escaped slaves. So um I was just shocked by this. You know, I, I was shocked by I was mostly shocked by the fact that I knew nothing about this. That was what was most shocking to me. Uh and not so much the fact that I there had been no family history because passed down to me about this because there were understandable reasons why that might not have happened. Um my ancestors were kind of separated from African American culture. They were raised in a white family. And then um, some of them died very early, and so nobody remembered them, and so nobody... So it made sense that the story was lost in my family. But what I was shocked by was that I I had no idea that anyone had been enslaved in Canada. My conception of, of what slavery was like in Canada was that Canada was the place where slaves went to escape. Um, from slavery in the United States. I had no idea that prior to that time, uh, Canada had its own 200-year-long history of having slaves. Um, I had no idea that you know, many of the early politicians in Canada owned slaves and were slave owners, and that the political culture in Canada was very pro-slavery. I just, I knew none of that. And that surprised me because I, you know, I, I, I like history, I read a lot of history, and this is something that I just never had seen. So... Um, around the time that this was 
that I, I finally was able to prove that I was descended from slaves who had lived in Canada in um, a town called Amherstburg, just across the river from Detroit. I was launching this podcast and I was preparing to launch this podcast and I was looking to find a cause that I could donate a portion of my uh, proceeds to. And COVID was happening, so I was thinking, well, maybe we can do something with COVID, or I don't know. But I wanted it to be kind of personal. And this story just kind of fell into my lap at that moment, and I thought, oh, that's great. I need to do something about this. So I am donating 5% of all the money I make on this podcast to the Amherstburg Freedom Museum, which is a museum in Amherstburg, Canada, the city, little town in which my ancestors were enslaved. Um, and the museum commemorates... Uh, both the uh, experience of slavery in Amherstburg um, and also the Amherstburg's role in the Underground Railroad because this town that my ancestors were enslaved in would later become um, a primary entry point into Canada for the Underground Railroad. So, and my family actually has connections to both of those uh, stories and I, my family may have helped build that museum, to be honest, because uh, the, the museum is located on the grounds of a of a church in which they were members of. So anyways, I'm still doing research on that. But anyways, needless to say, I have a deep personal um, familial connection to that museum. Uh, so for me, it was just the perfect choice to, um, as, as a choice for uh, a charitable contribution part of, of the show. So that's that's what it, uh, I'm doing. I announced that in the last episode, but I read it in here. So for all those reasons, right? I mean, because I have such a, big personal stake in this story and because um i do plan on donating um part of the show's revenue to this museum i wanted to have my first episode be uh with a guest who is an expert in this area and who can teach us about the history of slavery in canada and tell us why it's such an under uh reported story and why so few people know about it and uh, natasha has just perfect guest for that right she's an expert in this area and we had a great conversation about all those things and you know about the history of, in canada overall about why it's not taught um we talked about the legacy of of slavery in canada the segregation that followed and, and the issues that are still going on today um we talked about where we're going in terms of an apology because it's still kind of it's still kind of boggles my mind that canada which you normally think is as being sort of a liberal progressive place hasn't yet apologized um for its 200 year history of slavery and um and it, it i think it was a really important conversation and it's an important conversation to have now even more than ever because when you when you really look at events that are happening now in 2020 uh it's important to understand them in a historical context right so I mean, you say the phrase Black Lives Matter. I think one important question to ask is why did black lives not matter in the first place? Right? Why, I mean, why is it that we live in a country where black lives matter less than other lives? And you can, uh, you can draw a direct line from the experience of slavery to, um, in the, in the devaluing, and the uh, dehumanizing aspects of that institution, you know, to 
uh, you know, sort of the residual effects that still exist today in 2020. Um, so I think it's an important story to understand, and I'm certainly understanding more and more about it. And um, and I'm very grateful for Natasha for the interview, and I'm also grateful for um, for herself and for other other scholars who are really drawing attention to this story. And I hope to do more personally going forward um, because of you know, this recently discovered family connection um, to do my part in in uh, remembering that history uh, as well because uh, there's still there's still a lot to be done so um, I think it's a fantastic show uh, enjoy it and uh, without further ado um, I give you Natasha Henry All right. um, so I'm here with Natasha Henry and so I told you this story and but I think I want to tell the the audience as well. Um so I recently found out that I am descended from Canadian uh slaves which was surprising to me because I had no idea there was slavery in Canada. Um and so I wanted to dedicate the first episode of my podcast to this just absolutely fascinating and absolutely just like criminally under um understood and underreported story uh of the history of slavery in canada and you are a historian and you specialize in this topic and i just want to find out everything i possibly can about this just just really fascinating period of, of, of canadian history so why don't we start at the beginning? How, when did slavery in Canada start? So slavery started in Canada in the 1600s. Uh, there is the first documented African who was enslaved in um, New France uh, in 1628. And that was a young boy who was given the name Olivier Lejeune. So that is the first documented African uh, person who was held uh, in bondage in what we now call Canada. Um, at that time, uh, the these lands were colonized by the French, yeah. and so the French um, regime was the French Empire was uh, under control and was beginning to settle. And the first people who um, they enslaved here in, in Canada were primarily the indigenous peoples. Um, and so that was in the 1600s, going into the 1700s. Um, and, and there was a study done by a French historian, Marcel Trudeau, uh, who, um, you know, sought to pull a lot of this information together. And so he's um, estimated that there were over 3,000 uh, people who were held, uh, uh, who were enslaved. Uh, about two-thirds of them would have been indigenous, and a third of those um, were people who were of African descent. When the British uh, conquered the French in the Seven Years' War, 1760, um, and with the turnover from a French colony to uh, British control um, uh, by in 1760, the treaty um, that uh, governed the turnover of the of of land uh, included 
an article, a clause that said that the indigenous people and the African people who were enslaved at the time of this change, a change of power, would remain enslaved. And so in, you know, thinking about in a, in a document outlining, um, you know, the end of a, of a conflict, that there was specificity around, um, you know, the, the insurance of of um, of the enslavement of these people, you know, speaks to how how common and how accepted the practice was, and so then right after that we start to see there uh, that under the British, the demographics of those who were enslaved changed to become uh, an African uh, an African majority and primarily uh, African people who were enslaved uh, in these British colonies. So that's fascinating. So it, it went from indigenous to African, which is a pattern you see across the the Western Hemisphere, really. Um, mm-hmm. Where did the African slaves come from? Meaning, um, did they did they mostly come from the United States? Well, so those who were enslaved, the African people who were enslaved, came um, via different means. There, um, some of the earliest um, records of enslavement were in the Nova Scotia area, so in the very east of Canada, and right near the Atlantic Ocean. Some of those, uh, some of those African people who were enslaved in early Nova Scotia and going into Quebec, some of them came from the Caribbean, um, and then you have those who were brought in and who were imported from the United States as well. Okay, yeah, so that that's the history that I'm most familiar with. The So the when the Revolutionary War happened in the United States, there was uh, winners and losers. There were the Patriots and there were the Loyalists. And the Loyalists who were loyal to the British Crown, many of them left uh, and went to Canada. And it appears that um, many of them took their slaves along with them. Is that, is that correct? Yes, and so there was this, yes, there was a surge of loyalist refugees who came to British North America as it was a British colony, and as you said, they were loyal to the British crown and were seeking refuge on, on British land. There were thousands of loyalists who came, and quite a number of them brought with them the African people that they enslaved. And, um, and, uh, we see we see this, for example, in the record, the military ledger called the Book of Negroes, and that's when uh, they were transported. The loyalists, some free blacks, a number of free blacks, uh, who received their freedom because of their service to the British Army, and then uh, Africans who were enslaved, who remained enslaved, they were documented in this ledger. They were transported from New York into Nova Scotia and subsequently some of these people would either stay in Nova Scotia or move to New Brunswick or Quebec or come down along the St. Lawrence River and settle into Upper Canada which we now uh, call Ontario. Okay, so, but the Canadian government or the British government at the time they welcomed this. They, they welcomed, yes, they absolutely um, uh, welcomed it. It was part uh, and parcel of the empire building of uh, the British Empire uh, f- to exploit uh, and use slave labor. Uh, so, you know, this is, was no different here in, um, 
in British North America and Canada, you'd see that, uh, again, the number, the demographics change with an increase in African people, um, and the numbers grew. There was also, um, as you said, so there was legislation that passed in um, just after the end of the war, uh, 1790, that encouraged uh, late loyalists, these were coming after the American Revolution, to come and settle in British North America, and it allowed them to import the Africans they enslaved uh, free of duty in charges. So they were listed with other properties such as furniture right. and, and, and cattle and, and whatnot. Um, so yes, uh, we start to, we see that how in the, the, the development of, you know, the, the British colonies that um, the, in, the enslavement of, of African people was, was an integral part of that. Yeah, that, uh, I mean, I, I was going to get to this later in, in the episode, but I have to get to it now because it's, it's just so uh, shocking to me. Why is this not well known? Because um, whenever I think of um, Canada and slavery, I always think of the Underground Railroad. That's what I was taught. I was taught that slaves escaped to Canada in order to achieve their freedom. I was never taught anything about um, this chapter in Canadian history. And uh, since I've been interested in this topic, I've talked to some Canadian friends, and they say the same thing. They say, I never knew this. I never knew Canada had slavery. Or how is this not better known by the general public? Um, it's not known for you know, a number of reasons. You touched on uh, the Underground Railroad, and that is a, a narrative that is woven tightly into the Canadian national narrative that everyone knows and praises Canada for being the safe haven for freedom seekers coming from the United States. Um, however, as you mentioned, uh, the general public is not very aware of our over 200 year history of enslavement here in Canada. Uh, it is, there are, there has been some research. So there is a, there's a history of historical research on, on the history of enslavement. Um, but it, it's, um, it's not something that was delved into deeply, uh, in terms of understanding and appreciating the, the experiences of the people who were held in bondage. It is something, again, the Underground Railroad is, um, is a story that's often used to portray Canada in juxtaposition to the United States, to portray mm. this idea of Canadian exceptionalism that, you know, you know, this idea of moral superiority that, that Canada is better than the United States. But we have, there are many historians, um, you know, over, you know, more recently, contemporary historians, a number of black uh, scholars, um, Fua Cooper, Charmaine Nelson, uh, there was a book also by Maureen Algersman, who are, uh, and um, Harvey Omani Whitfield, and some other scholars as well, um, who are really troubling um, this this idea and, and really bringing to the fore that um, slavery was uh, a part of uh, colonization. 
uh, and nation building in here in Canada. And it's something that, um, you know, demands proper attention in our history, historical narrative, and in the public consciousness. It's laid the topic of enslavement I have, was not in the curriculum until 2013. And even so, it is a topic of choice. So it's not anything that all students here in Ontario have to learn about as it relates to our um, colonial past. And so when you talk about where the silencing comes from, where that, right, you know, that's part, these are part of the processes where it takes place. And then when we get to the whole commemoration of, you know, the, 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 in air quotes, right, the founders of, of the country or the province, and many of them who were loyalists and a number of them who enslaved African people. Um, and this, these are, it's not part of their, it's not part of the narrative that's, that's celebrated and presented to the public. And so these are the ways that that silence and that lack of knowledge is perpetuated. Yeah, I, it's, it's so strange to me. I mean, I, I understand, I mean, the Underground Railroad was a good thing in a lot of ways. Um, I mean, in Canada could have said, no, actually, we're not going to take fugitive slaves. Uh, we're mm -hmm. going to turn them back, and we're going to send them back to the southern United States to their owners. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's a good thing, but <laughs> it, it does seem like that's the story that they, uh, that Canada wants to tell, uh, mm -hmm. rather than the whole story, right? And and that's and that's the, that's the point. That is an, an another story and another experience mm -hmm. in and of itself. Yeah. And you know, it is often it absolutely is something to recognize, but not solely in terms of the uh, relationship um, of. Uh, African people with the, the state, the colonial state, and then the, the nation state. And then further to that, to, com um, to complicate uh, the story of this movement of African people, you know, is the fact that prior to the Underground Railroad uh, in, you know, in 1780s, 1790s, um, in the 1790s, you had enslaved Africans from here in Canada escaping and going south oh, to yeah. more of the more of the northern states, yeah. um, to to um, you know to different places in Michigan, New uh -huh. York, um, and and Maine. So those who are kind of uh, more along the Quebec and and, and Nova Scotia side, more along you know some of those east those eastern shore um, states, uh, you know. Uh, so we you know we taking a closer look at this history again really helps to deepen our understanding of of um you know how canada was developed the you know you talk about how um you know the, the structuring of uh systemic racism what the roots of that are and how connected canada is to the you know the transatlantic slave trade from the united states to the caribbean to um to the metropole in Europe. Yeah, well, that um, it it is a Canadian story as well as an American story. I think I think uh, you hit on the on the head there. That that's um, Canada likes to think of itself as morally superior to the United States, and in some ways, I guess that's probably true. But you're right. The systemic racism that existed in the United States also existed in Canada, and also. For much the same reason, right? I mean, it was it was created to to create this sort of underclass of enslaved 
people. And and it, it amazes me because you said Olivier Lejeune was um, the early part of the the seventeenth century. I mean, that's pretty much from the founding, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, yes. so the beginning. So that means that Canada has had slavery for about half of its history. Is that roughly correct? Yeah, so 206 years uh, in terms of, um, yes, in terms of okay. uh, documentation, starting with um, Olivier Lejeune's uh, documentation. Yeah, and then Quebec was founded in like 1600-something. So yeah, I mean, that's about half of the time that Canada has been mm-hmm. settled by Europeans, I guess. Um, yes. It's been... That's fascinating. So you mentioned um, this is one of the most fascinating things that I, that I, I recently discovered, and, and you just mentioned it. We, I mean, we often think of Canada as a refuge for uh, American slavery, which it was, um, but it, it blows my mind to think that the United States was a refuge from Canadian slavery. And I know this from my own family's history, which, which I've discovered, is that my family escaped from a town called Amherstburg, Canada, to Michigan, um, and subsequently moved to Ohio, another uh, free state. Um, that's just crazy. I mean, there is a diaspora of descendants of Canadian slavery living in the United States, just as there is a diaspora of descendants of, of um, American slavery living in Canada. Which yes. it just blows my mind, and nobody knows this. And I and I've noticed. I mean, I've had to, I've had to I just in order to find out basic information about slavery in Canada. I mean, I've had to read PhD theses. I've had to read academic texts, but there's so little information um, available just to the public or just through Google or Wikipedia is crazy. Like I like. The town of Amherstburg, Canada, which, to my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, was like the capital of slavery in Canada, doesn't mention this on its Wikipedia page. Well, it, in terms of it being a capital, I mean, it was it was another uh, center okay. of um, of enslavement in in the province. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, but but slavery was a big part of its history, right? I mean, um, certainly post. Uh, Revolutionary War migration period. That that was a big part of Amherstburg's history. Doesn't appear on Amherstburg's Wikipedia page. And then there's this other. So like Simon Gertie, who is one of the a loyalist who moved slaves over to Canada. So Simon Gertie's Wikipedia page says after the end of the war, Simon Gertie settled in Upper Canada, now Ontario, along with loyalist and Indian allies of the British, such as nations of the Iroquois Confederacy. They were granted land by the British Crown in recognition of their service during the war. He retired to a farm near Fort Malden, present-day Amherstburg, Ontario, prior to the outbreak of the War of 1812. Now, (sighs) retiring to a farm and running a slave plantation are two very different things. (laughs) I don't understand why it's so... It's just weird to me. It's just weird to me that there's no... There's no... Uh, recognition of this like there's still a lot of um, of research to be done in terms of um, the specificity the scope and the nature mm. of enslavement in Ontario uh, and that really intrigued me which is you know why I decided to choose the topic for my right. my dissertation because you know here we are 
um, you know, when I started in 2016, that there wasn't any substantive information in terms of whether it's those who were enslaved or those who were the enslavers. And like you said, when you look at the stories of the enslavers, that a, a lot of that information is is omitted it's not easily come mm -hmm. by you have you know so there's still there's information in in disparate uh records um and depending on who the person is for example the enslaver if some of it is on the canadian side some of it could be in the british um archives canadian archives it could also be in archives for example in places like detroit right, depending okay. on right depending yeah. on who the person is and so there really is isn't like one place where you can go to get um at least some kind of grounded 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 foundational information on um on, on enslavement in ontario uh, which is why i decided to pull together my research findings into a database so that you know someone like yourself who's searching oh, right. yeah. Googling, that yeah, yeah. you would come across you know this database and then there would be information on those who were enslaved the database is structured around the experiences of those who were enslaved and also includes um, the people who were enslaved and because this is how, you know, researchers like myself are able to locate, right, the enslaved in, in, these, in the colonial records. And so, you know, when you look at some of these stories, as you said, you know, it's, it's not part and parcel of what is presented to the public and what needs to be um, problematized because, again, there isn't this full understanding of our colonial past and the fact that enslavement was a tool used by colonizers in order to grow personal and um, and and state wealth. So um, so that's something that's so important. Uh, and then it really looks at again when you talk you're talking about Simon Gertie is one person. He worked for um, the Indian Department had close relationships and personal relationships with indigenous people and he did get land grant um, uh, in Amherstburg area and uh, he's known to have held um, a, a number of slaves the number I haven't been able to ascertain but um, he definitely did his brother James Gertie enslaved um, a number of, of African people and even bequeathed um, even bequeathed yeah. them to his children in his in his will. I saw that uh, excerpt in your article. Yeah, that was fascinating. Yeah. yeah, and so we when you have the uh, the end of the American Revolution and the eventual turnover of Detroit, uh, the the prop, the land in Detroit from British from the British to the Americans, there were a number of. Um, of loyalists and a, a number of them who were agents in the Indian department, such as Matthew Elliott, I'm sure we'll talk about him shortly, who move from Detroit and are settled in the Amherstburg area, going into the Windsor area. Um, and they, um, they held quite a number of, of uh, enslaved people. And what I wanted to point out here as well, and how did they acquire these um, enslaved people again is is also interesting because and you asked this question earlier. So there's a lot of movement going on during the American Revolution, 
um, with the the British allied with uh, uh, indigenous warriors uh, from different First Nations, and so part of their war strategy was um, raiding and kidnapping, and that included the raiding and kidnapping of enslaved Africans. So they would go as far south. Um, you know, one raid is the Kentucky raid, which we'll talk about soon. Um, and there were quite a number of enslaved Africans who were brought up into uh, into Canada and were gifted or sold. And so this was a common pattern as well. So when we talk about um, the whole institution and the system of enslavement, um, you know, during this, the, during the conflict between the patriots and the loyalists, um, and, and, and indigenous people siding with with the British, that the African people were at the mercy of all of those parties involved, and that no matter who it was, you know, who they were facing, that their status right. as African people were enslaved people. And so it's important to take a look at all of how interwoven and interconnected these experiences are, because the history of enslavement is not black history. It's not just American history Absolutely, like you talked yeah. about, right? This is everyone's history, and it's not just something that um, that impacted African people or involved African people, but there were a number of actors and people involved. Yeah, well, that well, I mean, just to to put a point on how complicated history can be, I mean, I am a white person mostly, mostly European descent. But my black ancestors were owned by Native Americans. So mm -hmm. it's a very complicated story. Mm -hmm. And history is very complicated. And you're right, it, it, absolutely. I mean, it affects, I mean, it affects everyone. And it, affect, it affects how both of our countries, the United States and Canada, were founded. Because we, mm -hmm. we were both founded on these systems of racial um, uh, hierarchies. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and the, the after effects of those, hierarchies still exist today. Um, mm. And so what I've discovered just by thinking about these things is it really does help you to understand uh, what goes on today in 2020 to understand what was going on in 1820 and in 1720. And, and, um, and it's a shame, it's a shame that I feel like, I feel like in the United States we kind of can't ignore slavery because it's such a huge part of our history. Uh, you can't really understand anything about early American history without understanding slavery. But in Canada, I guess, I mean, the scale was smaller, so it's it's kind of possible to ignore it uh, in a way that it's not possible to ignore in the United States. Did you agree with that? Or? I, I would agree, um, but I would... I would push back on that to say not to you but i'm just saying mm, yeah, yeah, yeah yeah exactly yeah the idea that as you talked about the that the founding of um the, the 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 british colonies in what is now the united states and now here in canada um are grounded in the same um motivations the same actions mm -hmm right um the same ideas yeah. and so those are core elements of uh that are consistent throughout so the idea that african people were the ones who by 17 right 1780s were um in 1780s going to the 90s were the ones who were primarily enslaved 
it speaks to a particular ideology that existed among uh, white colonists and, um, and among indigenous people as well, right? In terms of, you know, who was held as, as, as property. Um, and as you talk about, you know, how American society was structured, you know, on enslavement, uh, economically and, and, and everything, you know, you see that on a large scale. But what, you know, we have to take a look at the fact that at the core, enslavement was an institution that occurred, that happened, and that existed here in Canada. What it looked like would differ, and enslavement differed in different contexts. So what enslavement looked like in the Caribbean would be different than what it looked like in different parts of the United States. What how mm. slave enslavement looked like in southern United States would look different in the northern states. And so it's very much the same for here in Canada. And so the work that I am doing and that other scholars are doing is, what did it look like here within this context? How did it play out in terms of right the structure of it the in relation to the law and you know in regards to the experiences of the people who were enslaved but the title of my dissertation research is one too many and really is pushing back against this idea that oh there were only a, you know there were a smaller number of african people who were enslaved in canada that's not the that's not you know, that's not the idea. The idea that doesn't matter the number. The fact that even one person could be held in bondage yeah. um, is something that it has to be interrogated and um, and, 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 right, and, and deconstructed to understand what allowed that to happen and exist for over 200 years. Absolutely. You know, I, I couldn't agree more. I, I've heard so many, um, so many ways of trying to minimize slavery in, in different contexts, and that is certainly one of them, where there are, there are a smaller number of people. Or I've heard things like, uh, in the United States, it, it, it's not that well known, but the northern states also had slaves in, in the early part of their history. Yes. Um, and oftentimes it's pointed out, well, the northern states had slavery, but... Um, you know, they didn't have plantations or anything. So, I mean, they, so, I mean, they, they were, you know, they were butlers or they were, you know, taking care of the children. And whenever I hear that, I'm always think, well, okay, but they didn't get paid, did they? Uh, and, they and they didn't, you know, they didn't have a choice to leave. And I mean, all of the fundamental elements of, of slavery still existed in that context. Mm -hmm. It was just, yeah, they didn't, they performed a different type of labor. Mm -hmm. um, but to say that one type of labor is better than another type of labor um, when it's compelled labor, to me, doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And I've heard that in, in the context of slavery in the north of the United States. And then I've also heard that in the context of slavery in Canada, mm -hmm. that it was mostly just, well, you know, they were taking care of the children and they were, you know, they were driving the carts or whatever, but they weren't, you know, they weren't growing cotton. Well, what does that what does that matter really? Well, they uh, grew, uh, right, they grew different things and the experiences uh, were, were different. Um, and they were different. And yes, it was domestic, um, largely domestic slavery, not plantation-style slavery. Mm -hmm. um, but again, the fact that a system could deem a group of people as non-persons, but right. as chattel property, right. and enslave them and, and, and steal their labor and deny their freedom um, and rob them of their families, is very you know is is at the crux of that and that is 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 something that needs to be interrogated because it is it is problematic and then another thing that's often um mentioned in relation to differentiating or qualifying um 
the marginalization of the story is that, oh, well, they would have been better treated than than those who were enslaved in the United States or in the Caribbean, or they were treated as as one of the family. Which and and these are these ideas that somehow you know it's it's more benign and that they were part of the family is it has to be problematized because yeah. they were not they were held as personal property. Yeah, right? it, it, it's different, but not better, right? I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, that, for sure, for sure. Yeah, I've, I've heard a, I've heard a lot of things like that. I mean, in in the United States, for example, slaves slaves were essentially bred in the United States, uh, which they weren't so much in other parts of the Americas, and that's not a fun experience for anyone. Um, but they didn't work the slaves to death like they did in the Caribbean or in Brazil, so. How do you possibly, how can you, they're all horrible things that are happening. Mm. And hereditary enslavement is a common element. Hereditary enslavement all right. in, yeah. all right. here in, in Canada as well, mm-hmm. where, right, the, the, the status of the children right. followed that of the mother. And again, we see that going back to James Gurdy's will, where he um, bestows a, 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 a few women enslaved women to his children and in the will even though this is after 1793 legislation that's supposed to gradually abolish slavery his will um was probated in 1817 so in this will when he um bestows these enslaved women to his children he says and he also bestows some young children and then he also says the children of those children will still belong to his family his heirs and the signs so there's this like this right this there's this perpetuity that they're intending to continue to enslave generations of um these these families born through the through the through the um, through matrilineage right which is odd historically in the the grand history of slavery going back thousands and thousands of years i mean slaves in the roman empire were not um, their children were not automatically slaves. Um, that's something that that's a system that developed here in the Americas, but that's not a, that's not necessarily has to be a part of slavery. That's not necessarily um, what was done in in other parts of the world. That's and that's yes, and that's what makes um, you know understanding the the mm. the uh, iteration, if you will, of enslavement in in the New World in the Atlantic world um, it requires deep study. Mm-hmm. Um, because this, it was, it's racial slavery, it's racial enslavement, um, and we see that, you know, group, particular groups of people, again, in first indigenous, and then African people, who were, you know, forcefully assigned to this status, and then you have, um, you know, the, exploit, the, the, the exploitation of their labor. You have, you know, laws that were developed around this and, and social practices and norms that were developed around this mm-hmm. particular right be, of racial enslavement. And right. so there is a distinction um, that, you know, that needs to be made. And they couldn't escape that status. Um, even if they could escape slavery, which I guess some, sometimes is possible, some slaves were, were what are called manumitted. Um, um, you couldn't escape the the status of your race. You couldn't escape right. that system, which mm-hmm. you know, and even today's 
Yeah, obviously, that, even today, that, that still has, has impacts on... Uh, it's right, because out of know. that, we get the racial categorization, we get the racial mm-hmm. stratification of society, mm-hmm. and as you mentioned, and we talked about, you know, these are the these are the legacies of enslavement that are with us today. When we go back to that time period, um, there, were, um, there were enslaved people who, if they had the opportunity to, to flee and, 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 you know, pursue their freedom in one place... Like you said, because of of their their race, this designated race, they were marked for enslavement, and so someone could technically even be free, right, legally, but then could be stolen and sold, resold into slavery, or be free, a free person, and sold into slavery, and that happened. Um, in the United States, and it happened here in Canada too. Uh, and so, you know, there's these the way that it manifests and it evolved that really um, speaks to the particularities of, um, you know, of race and racism today. Yeah, it's fascinating. I didn't know that happened in Canada. I know, I know the what was that the Simon Northrop story, right? Uh, happened yes. in the United States. Yeah, I didn't realize that had happened in Canada as well. Wow. Um, okay, so let. Let's talk about, you mentioned, uh, we mentioned Amherstburg really quickly, and uh, you mentioned um, Burr's invasion uh, of Kentucky. Let's get into that a little bit, because this is, this is just a crazy story. So, in, in, um, during the Revolutionary War, a group of British commanders uh, with their Indian allies went down to Kentucky, uh, took prisoner hundreds of people, Along the way, yes. Yeah, uh, including um, like white prisoners and black prisoners. They came back to Detroit, which was kind of the, the center of, of British activity at that time. And then they sent the white prisoners to Montreal to be prisoners of war. And they kept the black slaves for themselves. Hun- hundreds of them, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and then after the war ended, they moved these hundreds of slaves over to Canada and established what was, you mentioned, it was a center of slave, um, uh, of slavery in Canada. How, like, I, I, when I learned this story, and I know this story because my ancestors were among those who were captured and who were, like, it's just such a world away from the world that we live in. I mean, I just can't imagine how something like this can happen how how was this allowed to happen back then um well that was that this was colonization in the making right and this is this is that this is what what happened and african people were as as i mentioned before as i mentioned already that they were you know they were bartered gifted sold yeah, so when property, you have right? for example um that particular raid uh and some of the the british um the british indian agents capitalized on that and so even though um their commanding officer uh, uh um wanted to find out you know what was happening with insla- with those who were enslaved and where were they where were they kept um, these um, you know these other military officers were selling selling um, you know these enslaved African captives and and, and and using them or keeping them for themselves right. so as you talked about with the Gerties um, James and Simon um, they had a few and Matthew Elliott he's more known 
in terms of um, having one of the largest number of um, enslaved people uh, in, in Ontario. So he, when he settled in Amherstburg, it is said that he enslaved between 50 and 60 yeah, um, African people. And um, and he, you know, and, and so, you know, they cleared the, his land um, and did a, a whole, you know, obviously they did all of that, that work um, that he celebrated for being one of the, you know, the earliest, founders of um uh of of the town um and and so you know the you know taking a look at that we we see how that that takes that plays out that the raids also happened and um and some of these enslaved africans were brought into niagara because niagara was another military center and uh so for example um, there was a young girl by the name of Sophia Pooley who was um, one of many uh, kidnapped by indigenous uh, warriors, brought in, and between coming, leaving New York and getting into Niagara, she became the property of Mohawk Chief Joseph Brandt. And again, so Joseph Brandt, as a as a as a Mohawk um, as, as a Mohawk loyalist, when he eventually had to settle. Here in Ontario, he couldn't return back to the north to northern New York. It is said that he enslaved at least forty people. The majority of them um, enslaved Africans, including this young girl by the name of Sophia Pooley, who at the time would have been about nine or ten years old. And and just to be clear, I mean the Canadian government or the you know the government at the time, which was which was British in a sense, did not seem to care about this at all. It seems. I mean, it did, was there any opposition to this happening? Because um, it seems like there was a, the, what you're describing, both in Niagara and Amherstburg, was sort of an acceleration of slavery in Canada uh, associated with the Loyalist migration. Um, I mean, was there any concern amongst government officials in Canada that this might be immoral, that this might be a bad thing to do, that you know they wanted to keep slavery out of Canada and 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 uh, was there any opposition at all to this happening? Cause it- Generally, um, as you're asking, no, um, because as I said, this was part of the work of the British Empire in expanding their reach, and right. you know the agents of you know of colonization did the same things, you know, or similar things in in different spaces, including here in Canada. There were. Uh, for example, when I talked about one of the military officials, Frederick Haldeman, um, when he was inquiring about the whereabouts of uh, some enslaved Africans because their enslavers were looking for them. Some of these enslavers were also um, prisoners of war, such as Agnes Laforce, who you mm-hmm. mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, so people were, uh, and other loyalists, fellow loyalists, fellow military um, uh, soldiers were looking for their uh, enslaved property, so to speak, uh, and so you know he wanted kind of that checks it, that check and balance. Um, not to say that there was outright uh, you know dismay around the practice of of, of what was happening um, in the wreckage. There are some people, individuals who expressed um, you know that they did not agree with what was happening. Um, for example, one military officer writing to the same Haldeman talked about 
uh, one particular man who um, he received his freedom. He served. He received his freedom. He was brought into British North America, and he was sold. And he was lobbying for this man to for him to obtain to maintain his freedom, saying, "I would even pay whatever so that this man, you know, it's a shame that here we are. We promised the freedom, and he's being, you know, mistreated in this way." Um, so there are some individuals, but by and large, you're mm-hmm. talking about the state, no. Yeah. And then in 1793. When the Attorney General John White and the Lieutenant Governor uh, John Grave Simcoe um, attempted to introduce legislation to abolish slavery, uh, it, it was not successful because half of the politicians themselves were enslavers. And so the, the compromise was the 1793 Act to Limit Slavery, which would gradually abolish slavery. But what this legislation did was, at outright, the very first clause says, those who were held in bondage in 1793, the date this legislation takes effect, remain enslaved. All right. Right? And so you have the state reinforcing the institution of enslavement through legislation. And so, you know, to answer your question, this we see how, um, you know, and then through contract law, through some of these, some of the the, the wills and and bills of sale, and again going back to James Gertie's will all the way in 1817, which allows for um, the bequeathing of Af- enslaved Africans to 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 the to the family even in 1817. This is, that's fascinating. So I mean, Canada was was the the government of Canada then was, was strongly pro-slavery for quite some time. So the um, colonial, colonial British government. Right, okay. Yes. Um, how did things change then? Because the United States didn't eliminate slavery until 1864. Canada, if I understand, uh, officially in 1833, but it had uh, been chipped away at. Uh, right. So, right. So, depending on where in in Canada, it started to um, it started to wane in Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, um, in Quebec. Uh, you know, in those places, for example, uh, some some judges put the onus on enslavers to prove with records that they did actually have the right to enslave um, some uh, the Africans that they were claiming through courts. Um, there were African people who were, because there were African people who were going to the courts and demanding their freedom. And so in, in this respect, um, it, it started to fade away in some places. Uh, here again in Ontario with the 1793 Act, it was intended to gradually abolish slavery over a few generations. And then in 1833, there uh, in Britain, the, the the abolition act is introduced which uh abolishes slavery in most british colonies on august 1st 1834 which included canada so by that time there were very few um african people who were enslaved in in ontario at that time okay and that and that was that was so that was empire wide but that that wasn't something that was imposed on can i mean the canadian government at that time were the Canadian political establishments, shall we say, uh, they agreed with that decision at that time, more or less, right? Uh, 
by that time, by that time it's yeah. in 1830s in the 1830s yes and it's just interesting to note that five years after um, the 1793 act in 1798 there was a politician who introduced a, a bill a piece of legislation to reverse the 1793 Act to mm. allow the reinstatement of full enslavement to encourage um, settlers coming in from the United States to import the Africans they enslaved. And this passed the first few readings of legislation um, by a vote of eight to four. Um, and and so when you take a look at that, what, what happened was there were a couple of, um, it was near the end of the session of the year, and it was tied up, um, and the politician who introduced the bill, Christopher Robinson, uh, when Parliament resumed the following fall, he passed away. So the bill was never brought to life again mm -hmm. in the new Parliament. But what that shows you is that, again, the attitudes and the ideas around enslavement you know we're very much um pro-slavery and pushed yeah. by the elite and the leaders of of the of the colony which is not the impression you get at all um if the the average person thinks about canada and slavery like I said, the average person thinks about canada and slavery they think of it as a refuge they think of it as a haven mm -hmm. um and they they think of canadian leaders as the people who made the decision to yes. make canada a haven they, mm -hmm. I mean, this whole story that of decades, so well, centuries long in terms of an institution, but I mean, decades of British, um, British governance, yes. that they they were very pro-slavery. They wanted slaves to come in. They wanted. I'm assuming that part of this is wanting to develop Ontario as a counterpoint to Quebec. Is that was that was that part of the reason why they were so. Well, it's a common element of of colonization, of the extraction oh, yeah. of indigenous land and the yeah, extraction yeah. of of African labor. Yeah. So this is, you know, this is that's just part and parcel of what what occurred in um, in colonization. Sure. And, so, and then even after um, the eventual abolition in 1834. What, again, what we see playing out where, yes, Canada becomes this place where freedom could be had by African-American freedom seekers, but the ideas around race and the views of African people didn't necessarily change. And so while people were, were more receptive and were becoming more um, anti-slavery and then anti-slavery in terms of what was happening in the U.S. after British abolition, it didn't necessarily equate to the uh, to the view that they perceived African people to be equal to white people, and so you still have the the, the this racial hierarchy in ideology was played out in the treatment um, in the second class citizenship of Black Canadians, um, you know, after 1834. I I noticed that in some of my research. I I, I was reading an Amherstburg newspaper from the 1850s, I think it was, or something. And uh, uh, published by white people, obviously. And um, well, actually, there was one published by by black people. That was a good one too. Um, but uh, you could tell from the editorials at the time that although they were semi okay with um, black people coming into the country because they thought slavery was wrong, at least some, they were in no way thought black people were equal. 
and they didn't mm-hmm. want to live with them, frankly. They, they wanted them to go live in other places and move on from Amherstburg. They didn't want them to stay. They wanted them to just keep going and form their own. I, I was reading that they, the, a lot of freed slaves formed their own cities in Canada. And they, and didn't, want, yeah, and they didn't want their mm. children to attend the same schools. Oh, right, so yeah. what we see in what, what we see right after 1834, uh, the, the beginnings of um, the inception of public education, then called common schools, was that uh, you know, racially segregated schools were formed in partic- particularly places with a high concentration of black inhabitants like Amherstburg, Windsor, uh, Chatham area, um, you know, going in Colchester. So some of those areas, uh, you see this de- this racial demarcation and we see that playing out clearly in, in, um, in education. Uh, as early, there's a map um, of uh, the school district and the map clearly shows um, a segregated school for, for Negroes, and, you know, at the term on the map in 1842. Wow. Um, and then even in ha- Amherstburg, there was a um, uh, records from school trustees, white school trustees, uh, who recorded their objection of the idea of an integrated school saying that, um, you know, that they would rather cut off their children's head than have their children and throw them in a ditch than to have their children attend schools with black children. So you have these entrenched ideas of anti-blackness, pervasive anti-blackness coming out of the, the, the history of slavery that structured, um, again, you know, the, the, the lives of African people in education and employment. And like you talked about in, in residential, um, you know, in, in, in different areas, again, that continues through to the 21st century. Yeah, well, that's funny. I didn't know schools were segregated in Canada. Um, can I, how long did that, when did that finally end? I'm assuming it ended. When did that so there were a number of segregated schools, and I said especially places where there were higher concentrations of black inhabitants, large number of um, right freedom seekers and their children. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it they these individual schools, um, these jurisdictions, they were um, in, they were integrated. Our segregated school ended at, at different times um, because okay. of the agitation of, of black parents. So, for example, in Chatham in 1892 was when schools were desegregated. Uh, in Windsor area, there were a couple of lawsuits that eventually led to um, to uh, to desegregation after the cases because the court did uphold segregated schools as well. But in terms of the province on the books. The, the legislation that allowed for segregated schools was um, introduced after the growth of the black population in 1850. So this was a response mm. of um, the white power structure. And that remained on the books and was used to close the very last segregated school in Colchester, which is uh, just north of Windsor, in 1965. Whoa. That's crazy. Okay, so there wasn't a single... We think in the United States, it's, uh, the, the Brown versus Board of Education case is kind of the single uh, mm-hmm. moment, but there wasn't a single moment, but it lasted a long time. But yeah, 1962, that is... that is Wow, that's crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so I wanted to get into uh, what the status is of some sort of an official apology from the Canadian government um, for slavery. Um has there been attempts made? Has 
to do that? Has there been an apology? Has there been any... What's the status of all of that? There has been no apology, and um, there hasn't been an attempt by the federal government or provincial government to date. Um, this conversation has come into the limelight again and over the past few weeks because of, you know, we see the, you know, the, sure. the uprising in Black Lives, um, the Black Lives Matter sure. movement and talking about systemic racism. And so um, the Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, was asked a question by a reporter asking when he, when or if he intended to give an official apology as recommended um out of a, a report, a UN working group report uh, in 2017. And so in this report, uh, members of the team came and they did their investigation around uh, black life in Canada, Nova Scotia and Ontario. And, you know, they really um, hammered it in terms of, um, you know, the, the entrenched anti-black racism in the system going back to uh, the history of enslavement. And so it was recommended among other things that the government apologize for the history of enslavement, that they apologize for the dispossession of um, African Nova Scotians in Halifax and the community of Africville, um, you know, that they, they, you know, that they offer um, reparations uh, for, for the, you know, ongoing disproportionate outcomes faced by the black community. And so, and when the prime minister was asked that question, he didn't reply if or when he he would. Um, he was evasive with the response, just talking about continuing to work with black communities to address some of the issues. So there hasn't been a reckoning in any sense in terms of um, an apology for that and for you know making the connections between the past and the present mm -hmm. um and 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 you know there are there's the de there's this debate obviously in terms of um whether or not the government should apologize uh you know from you know from other from canadians as well from other canadians uh you know for for different reasons um that you know, we all we need to problematize as well. Uh, so this that's where things stand. There are people, there are communities um, who continue to agitate for a government response, particularly as it relates to this report um, and the, the fact that the Canadian government endorsed the UN Decade for People of African Descent, which has a program that talks about addressing systemically the issues that have been barriers for um, for black people, the African descended people coming out of this history of the transatlantic slave trade. And so for the government to sign on to this, um, right, to this 10 year program to make this commitment, uh, you know, you have to question where do they stand on really getting to the heart of, you know, the core of some of these issues and really at making some some deep structural changes to affect change. So, um, in your view, then, would an apology be necessary but not sufficient? Would that be? Yes, yes, okay. absolutely. Yeah. An apology is necessary and and is not sufficient in and of itself. In and of itself, that an apology would be, as I talked about in my article, a first step in reckoning. In you know, in in fostering um, healing for people who feel that that's something that's important to them, um, communities that are important to them, and 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 to follow along a process 
where you know there are reparations and restitution made uh, in, in in different forms for um, for the systemic harm that continues to be uh, felt by Black Canadian communities. So strong investments in education, making systemic changes in education, making systemic changes in employment, making changes in, um, you know, in policing. And there's just, again, because of where we are at this particular time, there's been a lot of conversation um, to be had, but the government needs to come to the table prepared to have that conversation and prepared to do what they need to do and should be doing in order to move things forward. Okay, so um, I guess the so the ideal situation would be if the Canadian government um, has a formal apology, a very um, you know sincere apology, complete apology, uh, and then also pairs that with uh, an actual actionable plan to combat the effects um, that slavery has had, uh, and, and to change the material conditions for. Yes. For black Canadians, yes. yes. Okay, that makes that makes that makes a lot of sense. Do you um, favor or um, have an opinion at all on direct financial compensation for the descendants of, of slavery? If I have an opinion, yes, I, I do. I think that it's something that definitely needs to happen. You know, what will rep what can and should reparations look like is not just one thing it's not just one response that it would take you know uh, a myriad of approaches uh, in order to to restore to repair collectively and individually uh, my um, my professor and supervisor dr michelle johnson recently did an interview and she really you know provided uh some good some good thought in terms of what that could look like. So there's the collective repair because of the very real realities and impact of enslavement on African people as a collective. And then there needs to be an individual stream for individuals who were affected by enslavement. If we go back to enslavement and, and, and you know, in terms of how you follow through with that, but there's also very real and very specific instances of damage by the state against um, uh, black communities that need to be um, restituted as well. So whether it's um, you know the in Africville, um, yes. we have there for so the raising of Africville. There's also in the uh, with the Halifax explosion that happened in again there were black people who were deliberately denied any compensation because. They were black, and so these are some of the things come again um, that have affected um, black people, and, and in Nova Scotia particularly so. Uh, and a third instance there in in Nova Scotia is when um, some of the the black loyalists received their land. Um, you know, whatever quality of land that they may be, they didn't receive the documentation of their land sometimes. And so the families, generations for generations asking for the deeds were denied the uh. deeds and could not benefit from the land the way that white um, settlers could. And uh, so that, again, was another systemic, um, egregious systemic uh, impact Absolutely, on African yeah. social. So and these that, are just some of the things yeah. to look at. And that seems very like, actionable, too. That seems like there's a, there's a, a, a trail of very specific uh, place and time and mm. records, and you can probably calculate 
you know, what that costs them to a relatively good uh, degree and then make restitution for that. Um, right. And then with yeah. the systemic approach, when we take a look at the outcomes of black Canadians, um, those, again, bearing out of a, of a history of, um, you know, structural anti-black racism, again, whether it's in education or healthcare or child welfare, all of these things require a systemic um, approach to addressing and correcting those um, those those negative impacts on black Canadians. Absolutely, yeah. Um, one thing I've been thinking about, and I'd love to hear your, your opinion on this, is that I mentioned that there is an American diaspora of... Um, descendants of Canadian slavery, and I'm part of that diaspora, and there are thousands of other people, I know at least, just that I'm, like, related to, who uh, have the same history. Um, I, I wonder if a restoration of citizenship would be a good thing. Because um, when I look at my family's story, they left Canada because Canada kept trying to enslave them, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and when I think, look at like a country like Spain, which offered citizenship to uh, the descendants of uh, the Jews that they expelled in, in 14, was it the end of the 15th century? Um, could that be a, a form of, to me, that just seems like a form of, of, of restitution and of healing. And it could be a good example even for the United States, which obviously has I the did. reverse. And and I would think that that would be perhaps a, you know, a bilateral, a binational. Exactly. Yeah, um, exactly. Right. Proposal, because you have the back and forth across the, right, mm -hmm. this, this, exactly. this, this yeah, fluid yeah. border. That would be of, a great thing. Yeah. That's you know, something to consider. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and more broadly, what I'm, what I'm fascinated by the Canadian example is that Canada obviously is, is a more liberal country than the United States in many ways. Um and if Canada could get an apology for slavery right, meaning do it in the right way, in the way that you describe, that could serve as an example for the United States, couldn't it? I mean, are there any, has, has there any thought of that in Canada, that you could be a moral example to the rest of, of the new world? Well, I think, who hasn't we need to stop. I think we need to stop thinking about being a moral example because we're, we, that's part of... Well, that's that part of the problem. That's part of the reason. The okay, problem, fair right? enough. That's part of the reason why but, um, the history is not known. Yeah. So, yeah, so yeah. I think that it should be something, you know, if it could happen, it would. It could be an example. Um, but these are conversations that, that need to be had and at a serious level by leaders and um, you know, now you have all of these statements about um, recognizing anti-black racism, supporting Black Lives Matter movements and all of this, but what is what mm. substance has changed? What has changed structurally for Right for black people. Yeah, no, black I've, people I've wondered that myself. For, yeah, right for change, mm -hmm. and then you're you're talking about um, monuments. We're not talking about yes, that's a separate conversation. But what mm -hmm. we're talking about here is systemic, right? Is systemic yeah. um, entrenched in the structure of our society. So these are the things that we need to get back to. And if Canada could ideally get that right then that would be good. However, I would say that um, I think just over a week ago, the prime minister's office issued uh, a, a statement, uh, and, but however, he couldn't include the words because all, not all of the prime ministers of the provinces uh, and territories could agree that systemic racism exists. 
So this is where we are as a, right, as a a, a nation rooted, founded in colonization. Um, Again, right, racial, the structural, um, the racial structure of our stratification of our society. And yet the leaders of the province, the provinces, the territories can't even agree that systemic racism exists and so i don't know you know where canada will be in terms of being able to actually lead um you know Mm. other places such as such as the united states yeah but i still think you're probably a little further along than we are uh in many respects but that is so that is you're right that is part of the problem and it is part of the american perception of canada um we kind of see you guys as the the more liberal version of us and on some issues that's true and on some issues it's probably not true and um, certainly on the issue that we, we talked about the most today, which is the, the, the teaching of this history, I, I would argue that Canada is probably further behind than the United States. Wouldn't Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's fascinating. Mm-hmm. Yes. All right. Well, um, you know, you mentioned something earlier. You mentioned that, uh, well, I, I mentioned that I had a very difficult time finding information about, you know, all of this. And I hadn't considered that one of the reasons why I had a hard time finding information is that uh, there's no information to draw from. So in other words, when you're writing a Wikipedia article, you don't have an easily accessible place to go um, with academic rigor. To, and it sounds like that's the sort of thing that you're building and that's the sort well, of thing that your yeah. colleagues are building. Uh-huh. Well, I would say that you know it's, it speaks to the, the structure of the archives in one sense, and the archives um, contribute to what stories are preserved uh, and contribute what stories are told. And then you have the process of, of writing history um, by historians who then, you know, determine what information to extract from these available documents and to then share, right, to create and right. share as, as stories. Um, so our archives are, are, are colonial constructs. The the records preserved are primarily those of the same, um, you know, like I said, the elite, um, the loyalist elite, these the, co- the colonizers. Um, these are the records that you know that started in the uh, official archives. Um, and even some of the smaller archives as well, in terms of person of family histories. Um, and so these are these are where um, we find the enslaved documented in the personal records um, and uh, of these of these people. Uh, they're there. They're absolutely there. Uh, but you know how they're retrieved or how they're found is is, is part of the process of mm-hmm. how these stories become obfuscated. Um, you know, in some of the archives and most of the archives, there aren't um, specific records that say enslavement. So you can ask for a file on enslavement and then you'd be able to find right information uh, readily. Uh, yeah. You'd have to go through some of the individual records of people who held slaves or people who made some kind of documentation about the enslaved. And then, you know, you have the reality that those who were enslaved did not uh, create their own records because of the whole structure of, right, of, of society right, and, and yeah. where they placed. And so these are some of the complications. But all of that to say that there are still records that, you know, enslaved people do exist in these records and how 
you know, how they are um, extracted, how they are recounted, how their stories are re-narrated from those records are important. And so that's some of the work that myself and other scholars are doing in paying attention to these, um, the people who were enslaved as individuals, as human beings, as mothers and fathers mm -hmm. and children, um, and, 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 and highlighting their experiences in slave in, in enslavement but also as as individuals yeah that's something that I've, that's great i mean it's fantastic that you're doing that work and uh and it's, it's awesome um and that's something i thought about myself just doing genealogical research um because my ancestors were enslaved in Amherstburg for i think five generations um and just looking at the the numbers and the birth dates and some of them left some of them left accounts um the ones who escaped left some accounts of their lives and it's just thinking about what these people went through is just crazy i mean just being treated like like pawns in in this sort of geopolitical game between the patriots and the loyalists in canada and the united states and uh and it's so bizarre to see that no one cared about their welfare or thought of them as human beings or it's just it's just crazy and to think of the lives that they they live and what they had to go through and um i mean it's, it's fantastic that their stories are are going to be told and um just the good they can and so uh, yeah, and I think it's important, you know, to have this space as well, to have this conversation. So, I, you know, I do appreciate oh, yeah. you, you know, taking the time to, to oh, my pleasure, invite yeah. me to your oh, show. My, absolutely, my pleasure. You're, yeah, so I think, you know, ongoing conversation, ongoing research and ongoing learning are crucial in really kind of cha in changing uh, the public awareness of, um, of the history of enslavement uh, and, of, and, and to learn more. Um, in earnest about the people who were held in, in, in bondage. Absolutely. Well, I, I've learned a lot from, the, from this conversation and from my own research, and I'm, I'm, I'm loving the process. I, I've learned so much more than, um, than I ever thought possible about all this. Um, where can people go to find out more? I, I know the Amherstburg Freedom Museum uh, is one place people can go to learn about this history. Is there any other place in Canada, or is there anything else that you would recommend people read or... Well, you know, because we are in COVID times and under COVID restrictions, there, um, you know, in terms of physical visits, that it may not be possible. But there are some online resources. Um, you know, the archives of Nova Scotia has some information. Uh, the um, New Brunswick archives has uh, some uh, inf online information as well and the archives of Ontario they have an, an exhibit an online exhibit called enslaved Africans in Upper Canada which is a, a good resource as well um, what I've done in my work as an educator and curriculum consultant um, because I focus on black Canadian experiences past and present is I created a website and I try to compile all of these resources in one spot for people to find. And my website is uh, teachingafricancanadianhistory.weebly.com. If you search for my name, Natasha Henry, you'll, you, it will come up. Um, and so, you know, I do provide some links as well to different uh, resources around learning about Black Canadian history in general. All right, that sounds great. I'm, gonna, I'm definitely going to check that out. I encourage everyone to check that out. Um, that's awesome. Um, all right. Is there anything else you'd like to, to mention? 
I think we've covered it all. all. Right. This all is right. amazing. That sounds good. Yeah, no worries. That's great. All right. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Natasha Henry. Thank you very much for being on. You're welcome, Dan. Take all care. Right.